three, two, one. Our next guest is a culinary triple threat. Hawa Hassan is a dynamic chef, a recipe developer, and a James Beard award-winning cookbook author. She's the founder and CEO of Best Best Sauce, a popular line of sauces inspired by her home country of Somalia. Her first cookbook meets travel log in Bibi's Kitchen, shares recipes and stories from grandmothers or Bibi's in eight African countries bordering the Indian Ocean. She also shares recipes and stories on her Food Network show, Hewa at Home. Hewa is the ultimate storyteller. She was born in Somalia at the beginning of the Civil War and was the only family member who received sponsorship to come to the U.S. at age seven. Her life is full of miraculous adventures, and we will get into them. We recorded this episode during the holy month of Ramadan, and just a couple of days before, Hewa attended our annual At Your Service Iftar dinner. Now, we're cozied up on a Saturday afternoon in our Mandarin Oriental suite overlooking Central Park. It is my honor to share this slice of Hewa's extraordinary life. Finally. I know. I feel like this is a... I, I literally looked in my email and I was like, the last time I asked you this was literally in 2021. It was two years ago. And that was, I think you were recording How at Home. Yes. That year. And, uh, you know, just a casual show on the Food Network. <laughs> no yeah, big that, deal. That that show. God, it feels like a lifetime ago. Really? It feels so long ago. Did you enjoy doing it? I did. I I love... I love cooking and I love learning and I like being in front of the camera. That comes really easy to me. Yeah, you're so, so good. It was a lot of um, a lot of the things I like to do in one. Yeah, you know? yeah. And it was like a fun new experience. I'm so I loved it. I thought it was such a beautiful, like it was so integrated. It wasn't just about the food. It was about the story. It was about like the the spices and the flavors and also like what each of them meant and how you created home in so many different ways. And I'm so excited to talk about that with you. Thank you. So the way we kick off these conversations is asking a simple question. How is your heart doing today? It's so funny. Mona asked this question the other night and I struggled because I was thinking about like in the moment. Yeah. Like, and it was funny because I didn't realize how much I needed that type of a dinner that night. Mm. Like um, the proximity to people and mm -hmm. people that are similar to who I am and people who practice my religion. And so in that moment, I, I had like sadness and I was happy and I was a little overwhelmed. Um, so I've been thinking about this question since Thursday night. I would say today my heart feels at rest. Yeah. Um, but overall, I would say I think my heart the last couple of years has felt tired mm. um, for myself, for the world. Um, but overall, like today, I feel like I'm at rest. Mm. Well, rest is revolutionary. So that's a really great state to be in. And I think it's like when you say that you feel you felt tired for yourself in the world. I've just been thinking about your story so much and your origin story so much and how independent you became because you had to and how, you know, we are so lucky to witness 
like the fruits of the work that you've put in of how you piece together the story of who you are and how you've gotten here. So I would love um, if we could, I don't typically start at the beginning, but I would love with you to start a little bit at the beginning and take me back to when you were seven years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, okay. Seven is a little weird because when I was four, the war was starting. Yeah. Um, and that was in the late 80s, early 90s. And we moved to Kenya, my family and I. My mom at the time had five children. One of them was living with my grandmother in the countryside in Somalia. And so she was traveling with just four kids and one she was pregnant with. Yeah. So only three of us were with her. And then my little sister, Ayan, she was pregnant with. And so life i think the life i know now and have really started at four prior Mm -hmm. to that i was just a kid running around going to the beach on the weekends going to my grandfather's house on the weekends um but when we moved into the refugee camp when the war started we moved there because my mom was really intent on leaving somalia and africa altogether We really went because my parents were in the midst of a divorce. Mm -hmm. So my mom, who at the time I think was 23 or 24, was starting a new life in the midst of the war while being pregnant. Wow. And so when we got to the refugee camp, she quickly realized that help wasn't going to come as quickly as it was. And so we opened a a good store and we sold dry goods. Um, And that was like the first time I worked. And... It, it was such an adventurous time because I was a part of something that felt so new to all of us, mm-hmm. you know? I was, like, boiling pasta water. I was, like, taking care of my little sisters. My big brother had become, like, the man of the house. Meanwhile, he's, like, five. Um, and after a year of being there, my mother realized that it wasn't, you know, conducive to the life that she wanted us to have. So we moved to Nairobi, and we started school. And then two years later, there was an opportunity for a girl to go to Seattle with a group of nine men. How? Like, what does that even mean? What's the opportunity? A sponsorship. Mm-hmm. Uh, so originally, there was a little girl that was supposed to go. And about three months prior to leaving, her mother decided she wasn't going to go. And actually, this is a part of the story I don't really share much Um But now I know more about it because my mom and I have talked a lot about it. Yeah. So they decided that they weren't going to send their daughter. And my mom said, oh, I'll send my eldest daughter. And so I stepped in for this girl, moved to Seattle with the the eldest man who was my father on paper was a man named Abdi Samad, who was supposed to be like a, a grandfather from my dad's side of the family. So when we got to Seattle, the plan was my mom would follow and so you were like the key you were the ticket that could help i was i was one less person who needed to be sponsored right got it so i was gonna come to seattle then she was gonna wait for sponsorship yeah and then they were gonna move to seattle Mm -hmm. um she didn't think it would take long as god would have it she got that sponsorship in like 2007 but by then my family had moved to norway and but imagine had she waited from 1990 to, or 1993 to 2007, living in Kenya. Um, 
but my my mother is a brilliant woman who is a mover and a shaker and so I got to Seattle she realized that there wasn't going to be any sponsorship because Black Hawk Down had happened mm. and so they stopped giving uh, sponsorships to Somalis my mom then remarried the guy who does the money um, exchanging at the market she opened a gold store she sent him to Norway as a student, and he filed for family reunion. So my family's been living in Oslo since 1997. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> That's wild. I know. But, like, okay, fill in the the picture a little bit more for me. So you go to Seattle, mm-hmm. and you find out, and your mom finds out, that your reunion isn't going to be as soon. Because even the idea of reuniting after a year is a long time, mm-hmm. especially for a child. Do you remember how you were feeling and has she ever shared with you how she was feeling? Yeah. I mean, the first couple of years, yeah. I was like, oh, this is so exciting. This is a new adventure. You mm-hmm. know, my mom, my brother, and I had really been on these adventures together. Yeah. You know, my mom was so young. Now when I think about it, I'm like, gosh, I can't imagine being that young and having to figure it out. Yeah. It was at the end of elementary school that I was like oh no one's coming (laughs) who are you staying with I was still living in this I was living in a two-bedroom apartment so when we got there everyone kind of dispersed so it ended up being me and Abdesemet and two of the other guys so I had my own room we were living in the south side of Seattle when I started middle school I was like it's time to assimilate no one's coming so sixth grade I was like I gotta take off my hijab you know like I was like struggling with all the things and I did by seventh grade I took off my hijab I started playing basketball I joined a community center I joined all these like free programming like 4-H um oh my I remember 4-H oh Oh my my gosh (laughs) (laughs) might have been the only Muslim in young life that Christian group I was like I'm going on a horseback ride was 4-H Christian too no, it was just like a, it was it was like making young Americans farmers or something. Like yeah, that. I mean, I grew up in a rural town, so I, everybody was in 4-H. Yeah, I, I, I did mean, you want to do those things? Like, did 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 like how did how does a child at the time one? I mean, I'm just curious. Like, how did you come to start choosing or start wearing the hijab at such a young age? And then how did you make that decision as a child to s- decide not to anymore? So all of my mother's daughters did. It just wasn't, you know, my mother didn't wear hijab growing up. Um, It was a different time in Somalia and she was a traveler and her, my father went everywhere. And so I just, I always saw like really beautiful women who were modern and who, who were also religious and who, you know, worshiped in the way that they wanted to. They didn't follow any strict rules and there weren't, we weren't monolithic in the way that we are now as Somalis. And so when we got to Kenya, it was like, this is our differentiator. We are Muslims. Like, you know, it was like, we're Somalis and we're Muslims. So all of my mother's daughters did um, at that time. And then when I got there, I wore the hijab because I was like, I'm honoring my family. Yeah. You know, like, this is who I am. You know, this, my mother would want me to be a good girl. My mother would want me to be kind. My mother would want me to, like, you know, take care of this man, Abdesemad, or yeah i'm like she would want me to be a good daughter to him Mm -hmm. and so it's funny his name on paper is noel hassan that's why your last name is hassan no yes and so you know but like refugee stories are always so messy 
Um, it's beautiful. And so it's weird calling him Abdi-Semeth because, you know, it's like you just didn't do that. What, well, what did you call him? A wo-wo or, I, yeah, I just, I called him like grandpa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but so when I, I mean, when I was in the sixth grade, I was like, okay, you're going to become American. Yeah. Because they're not coming. Yeah. And then from that point on, I just was really angry and disconnected from them for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I got to the eighth grade, my basketball coach, I got really good at basketball and was playing AUU. And she said, I think if someone doesn't step in, you're going to slip through the cracks. Mm-hmm. Um, it's weird to talk. I appreciate you so much for sharing it. And we can pause at any time. Um, so, yeah, my my teammate, um, her parents took me in and raised me as their own. And I was there until I went off to college. Wow. And then a year or two into college, I was asked to move to New York. Well, when was the first time you ever felt properly represented in media? Properly represented? I still don't feel properly represented. Hey, I'm Noor Tagori, and I've been telling stories my entire life. For my new podcast, Rep, I've spent years examining a more personal story about how the misrepresentation of Muslims in media has impacted American society. I thought I knew the story because I thought I knew my story. But the more I looked for singular, clear answers, the more questions I had. Our story guides include academics, artists, actors, and we bounce around through American history and culture, witness our present and future unfold, and then we find out how these stories affect all of us. Welcome to Rep. Expression is a space in the heart that is unleashed and let free. It runs wild. Oh, Listen to Rep on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. Tell me about that. And also, when, like, at, at this time, how often are you able to communicate with your mom? I never spoke to them. I didn't speak to them from, I think, from eighth grade until I was a senior in high school. The family that was raising me, the mother was a school teacher. And um, she taught in an elementary school and she had Somali students. And one day, and Yvonne was really funny, I think, wherever she went, she like tried to connect with people in a way that sometimes was a little aggressive. So she was telling these Somali students, she's like, I have a Somali daughter. And so the kids went back home and they were like, Miss Yvonne has a Somali daughter. And so the mom came to the school and she said, um, what's her name? And she told them, and she said, you know, her mother's been looking for her. And so the lady brought, I'll never forget, the lady brought Yvonne, uh, like, remember the line paper we used to use in school? Mm -hmm. With my mother's phone number on it. It was like a 4-7 number. It was like this long Norwegian number. And she brought it to Yvonne, and she said um, she should call her mother. And so I did. And Abdi Semeth had just said to 
because I got emancipated when I moved in with them. He just said, oh, she moved in with some black Americans. Like, that's all he knew. That was the extent of what he knew. And so we waited till the weekend. We called my mom. And, Did, and like, how? what were you thinking? Um, I think I was thinking, like, I was no longer angry. I was ready to talk to them. I was ready to learn about their life. Um, I wanted to know more about Norway. I don't think, I don't think at that point, I must have known that they were in Norway, but I don't think I could, you know, that I could comprehend where Norway was. Yeah. I put a lot of thought into it. And so. So how old are you when you make this phone call? I had, I had to have been 15 because I graduated high school when I was 16. Mm -hmm. So yeah, like around my 15th birthday. And we just never stopped talking after that you know do you remember like one of the first things that she said to you oh she just was like i've been looking for you and i was like oh okay because lady you sent me here <laughs> like why you know <laughs> yeah a lot of therapy i know why now but mm. i'm like oh okay you know and she's like well what happened and i think she's still very angry about the way everything went down but she's really grateful that everything turned out fine. Yeah, you know, of course. Um, growing up in the U.S. in the '90s was a little, mm. you know, kids were getting snatched up, and so to be on this side of things and to have made even then, you know, I had the best of circumstances in Seattle, and I always tell people, I'm like, it's my mother's prayers. Yeah, you know, mm. there's no way, there's no other way to explain how everything went right. It was miraculous. Mm -hmm. It really was. Yeah. And it still is. I mean, look at what you're doing now. So, okay. So, you get the call to move to New York. Why? Um, I started modeling in high school. My best friend, Devin, was a model. And one day, I went in with her to her agency. And this woman, Paige, said, you should model. And I was like, I play basketball. I don't, why would I model? And... A little while later, I thought I needed a summer job. I should do it. Did it. Things went really well. Um, the Bar Marche at the time, which is Macy's now, was in Seattle. Nordstrom's, you know, that's their headquarters. I started doing really well. Eddie Bauer, like all these things just mm. started falling into place for me. And so when I was 19, they were like, you should move to New York. And I was like, say less. <laughs> Packed up my stuff. I came to visit when I was, I think, 17 for a summer. And then I came back when I was 19, and I moved to Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. No way. To and you're still a Brooklyn baby. I know. I'm still <laughs> there, which I'm so thankful for. Wow. So tell me about your relationship with food, and how did you use food as a tool to piece together your story? Um, well... So growing up in Seattle, I was very clear on who I was. You know, mm. I was, I'd always be like, I used to have this thing where one Sunday a month I would cry. Like I would bawl my eyes out. You were able to like hold it, concentrate it, and then pick the day? It was one Sunday a month. One Sunday a month. And I, I laugh sometimes because I'm like, you were a weird little girl. But that one Sunday I was like, I could feel whatever I want. Then we're going to pick ourselves back up mm -hmm. and we're going to get to it. And so I I would always walk around and I'd be like, I'm Khadija Usman's daughter. I'm Hussein Ahmed Adhan's daughter. 
like I knew who I was, you know? Mm. And I still sometimes do that when I need to remind, like when I need to center myself. And so it, I just have always felt like, I don't know what my mother was doing when she was praying, but I've always felt very grounded in myself. Mm. So I knew I was really different from everyone around me in Seattle. But I really loved being the girl next door. You know, mm. I was all of these things, but I was still like the basketball player, you know, a good student, a kind friend. Uh, you know, I, I was I was all these little things that I really hung on to my whole life. Mm -hmm. And so when I came to New York, I was like, oh, not only was I very different in Seattle, but this place is also a place of a lot of misfits. And no one is sharing the stories of misfits like me. Mm. We're all watching the news and we're all saying, oh yeah, maybe we are pirates. Maybe we are, you know, hungry all the time. Because mm. these are the stories that are being told about me to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I just kept thinking, how do I tell better stories about people like myself? Mm. And so I was always going to Norway. By now I was traveling to Norway all the time to be with my mother and sitting with her and her friends, I was like, they're healthy stories to tell. Mm. They're big, beautiful stories to tell. And those stories don't belong to the people who don't have the firsthand experience. Mm. So food for me, getting into it was a way of returning agency to myself and to my family and to people like me. Mm. So tell me when you, like what was the moment when you had like, the first idea that you were going to make this a career? Um, I gave up my apartment in 2014 and I moved to Norway. I was living in Fort Greene. I still live in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. And I went to be with my mother because I wanted to talk to her about who I wanted to be long term. Mm. And that was it for me. I was like, I'm going home and I'm starting a business and I'm starting with hot sauces. You like and and how did you know it was going to be hot sauces? Oh, because I took my Vitamix with me that summer to Norway. You for, took your Vitamix in your suitcase. I was such a crazy person. Oh my! <laughs> like of all of the things that you just told me, that might be the most peculiar. I was like, I'm gonna make my smoothies every morning. A whole and it Vitamix. Was Ramadan. I love it. And so every night I was. I was blending the hot sauces for the family. And my mom kept saying, this is such a good mixer. <laughs> <laughs> and that, I, I mean, I was making best best every night. And that's how really I was like, oh, I can go home and make this and like mm -hmm. inch my way onto American tables. Yeah. Yeah. And then I can like write a book and teach them. Mm -hmm. And then I can go on their TV and show them. Mm -hmm. And then, and I mean, now I look back and I'm like, I was so naive. I had such big ideas. But you did all of them. So why um, is that naive? I know, but I think had I really, had I written it all, I mean, I did write it all out, but had I really thought about the work it would take, I might have never started. Mm. You know? I think I feel similarly to that. Okay, tell me a little but bit But I don't know, that. but I don't know if I would have never started, like, I don't know if that's the sentiment, but I think it's my gratefulness towards being naive and how I started is when I think about it is more about um, people. Like I always assumed people are all very kind. 
-hmm. and people were all really supportive and like loving. And even when I first started on the internet itself, things were a lot more positive. You know, when a video, like every once in a while something would go viral, but it was always like in such joy. It was like a wedding dance or like a puppy video or something like that. And so I think that um, I really just felt like I saw possibility and I was like, oh, I can be exactly who I am out loud and it's just going to be fine. And I think had I known how things were going to become in terms of like, how people treat people when they're very loud with their ambitions and passions and how they like hyper scrutinize or, Mm. um, or in some cases make it their mission to like really put you down or tear you down or whatever it is. Then I don't know if I would have been as willing. Sometimes I say like, if I was my 17, 18 year old self, like 10, 15 years ago today, I'd, in this, in the world that we live in today, like, I don't know if I would have ever started in the way that I did. I don't think I would have had the courage to, cause it, it's still scary. It's so scary. Yeah. But isn't it satisfying to, you know, to have an idea and actualize it? Absolutely. And I still like, and I'm so grateful that like we've done that and we continue to do that. And yeah. also I think about how many people um, don't, are too afraid to do that for themselves because of how we how we treat people or because of how hard we make it yep. for people to to just truly try to do what feels truest to them. Yeah. I I can second that. Yeah. I do know that you being you and you doing the things you do gives permission to so many people to be which is so nice. Thanks for saying that. Yeah. I feel the same way about you. Thanks boo. I mean, you've done Bus Bus, you've written a cookbook BB's, in BB's Kitchen, you've documented the stories of the grandmothers and the generations who use food not only as a language but and a tool, but as an act of service and love. And it's interesting because something I've been thinking a lot about is when my grandmother like feel takes offense to Mm. if you don't eat her food like Mm -hmm. if you come over and you don't eat the food and she gets really offended or if you ate before you came Mm -hmm. because maybe you don't want to make her have to like go through that and I realized as and I've unpacked this like with my aunt but you know my grandmother got married when she was 15 she was pulled out of school and she like always you know resented that she wasn't able to finish her education and pursue a career but what she was able to master so beautifully was cooking the food of our culture and to serving it to family and 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 to each other and when she gets offended it's not that it's not about you not eating her food it's about that gesture of saying no or politely declining can be translated to her as, well, I don't love you because this is how we say I love you in many ways is making the food and serving the food and you enjoying the food and accepting that gift. So when you were pursuing in BB's kitchen, what was your, especially because you spent so many years away from your family directly and you were having, it's so interesting that you like basically came to know your family from this more mature lens where you were appreciating 
the smallest things that maybe as children we take for granted. So how did that perspective that you had of the elders who passed down these traditions impact the way you told that story? Um, ooh. So, I mean, it's really interesting because Somalis are a nomadic people and we're natural storytellers. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in Islam, we say paradise is at the foot of your mother. And so a lot of the way I've come into many stories that are about me, even as a child or my mother and my father's relationship is from just sitting with her in the kitchen, you know, mm -hmm. as a 20 something year old. Yeah. And so when I wanted to write about these women, I really, you know, I went into food to tell stories. And so my number one interest was what is missing? Who is missing? How do you make it better? Mm. And I wish I could say like there was this like big, great gesture behind you know preserving these stories from grandmothers but my main reason was no one is talking to our elders especially at the time i was like what is going on every 100 yeah um you know they were on tv like this is my nona's recipe this is my grandmother's recipe this is my abuela's recipe well where is she yeah absolutely you know and so selfishly, I wanted to preserve those stories for myself, for yeah. my friends. I wanted, I wanted to paint Africa in a different light. Yeah. I wanted to use the Indian Ocean as a thread. Mm. I wanted to talk about trade. I wanted to talk about colonization. I wanted to talk about, you know, historical snapshots, but also tell the stories of these women who are the backbone of our societies. And so... You know, I wish I could say there's like these like grand um, ideas behind the things I do. But for me, it's always a matter of what's missing. That's it. Like, I'm like, I always ask myself, I'm like, what's missing? And How did you reckon with the what was missing is the actual voice of the elder? Because um, that's frustrating. Yeah. OK, so I don't know that I've ever said this in an interview, but I'll tell you rest in peace Anthony Bourdain and I used to adore him and he would go so far and wide only to talk to other men on TV and I was like dang he's in a village in Senegal and there's no women I felt the same way about the Libya episode actually like where, where are the grandmas yeah you know and I, I didn't know if it was a cultural thing I, I didn't know Right. Um, I also had the same question about the Libyan. I was like, I wonder because it's also like culturally, there's so much separation. Mm -hmm. So I was just like, huh, was it just that like this wasn't, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It, it's a challenging thing to yeah, figure out. But I was like, I know that I could tell those stories. Yeah. And I was like, I know I can hold space for those women. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's how I always arrive at the things I do. You know, I, I grew up in conflict. So my next book is about food and conflict, yes. you know? Yes, yes. I'm um, very excited. Can you tell us about it? Yeah. So um, it's about, again, who gets to tell the story. So it's returning agency to people who've lived in historical conflict zones. So Afghanistan, um, Lebanon, the Congo, Liberia, um, Iraq. And so I traveled to these countries to record these people's stories. And what people will be surprised about is 
the book is about celebration. Mm-hmm. We have, I always say, we have no sad stories to tell. Because um, enough people have told our sadness, mm-hmm. you know, and made up even more sad stuff that mm-hmm. didn't even occur. And so it's about community. It's about connection. It's about family. It's about the everyday lives of people. So there's snapshots of people that I met along the way. And then it's about the food. Mm. You know, the diversity of the cuisines. Um, and I think that's going to be really beautiful. You know, I have I love El Salvador. It's not lost on me how similar El Salvador and Somalia are. Mm-hmm. And so I traveled to El Salvador to record their stories and to talk about, you know, the start of the war, the start of the war, you know, being about the coffee and the farmland. And I interview a man who's like 78 years old, a guy named Fernando, who's become so dear to me. Um, and we talk about his coffee journey and his young, you know, as his life as a coffee manager and travel to Lebanon and I meet an activist named Mikey. And so it's just, it's really about returning agency to the people it belongs to. Hi there, Noor here from At Your Service. At Your Service is a storytelling company. We tell stories as a form of service. And the way I think about it is story first, medium second. Meaning we don't think, hey, I really want to produce a podcast. What should it be about? No, we think of it as we have a story we want to tell. What is the best medium, the best way to tell it? Maybe it is a podcast. Maybe it's a documentary series, a virtual talk, a speaker series, a dinner party. Maybe it's a book club. The list goes on and on. We also love being of service to companies and brands and nonprofits to help them tell the best story possible so that they can serve their audience and their communities. So if you want to check out more of our work, you can do so at ays.media. You can also find the transcripts for all our podcast episodes right there. And if you're enjoying this podcast right now, It would mean so much to me if you could leave a review and give us some feedback. Let us know if you like this style of podcast or if you're looking for something else. And of course, if you have any stories you'd like to pitch for us, you can do that through our website as well. As always, at your service. Do you have a name for the book yet? I don't. We've been, okay, this is, uh, my editors are calling it In the Field. Mm. because when I was reporting on the book, I was like, oh, I'll be, I'm in the field. I'm busy. Yeah. Out in the field. Out in the field. But that has so many connotations, you know? It's going to come to you. Yeah. That's what I've been thinking. It'll, it'll come to you. You just got to make the space for it or or you'll see it in the interviews and then in the transcripts and the, and something will pop out and it'll be like, that's what, no, I know it will. And then you let me just text me and be like, oh my, and I figured it out. That's so beautiful. Um, how are you feeling before embarking on that journey? Uh, well, I don't know. I, I'm. I was really exhausted because I was coming off of Mbibi's Kitchen, then the TV shows, and then the beard happened. So I won the James Beard. And then I flew out that night to the Congo. Then I get stuck because I didn't have a visa lavlong for Congo. Got stuck in Paris for a day. So I was nervous and excited, but I was also exhausted. Mm-hmm. And then somewhere along the way, in the stories and in the people, I found 
rest in Liberia especially. Tell me. Oh, the people of Liberia are just joyful people, kind people, hospitable. So they just took me in. Mm. They took me and my photographer in. They cared for us. We went to their church. You know, we mm. we ate with them. I spent Juneteenth there. Wow. So that was historical. And I think it was this, um, I think it was the 400 year. Mm. I don't, I don't want to get it wrong, um, of free people living there. And so they were, they were celebrating that as well. Wow. Um, it just, it was just a joyful time. But beyond that, it's on the ocean. Yeah. Life is like really easy and smooth there. And I was coming from the Congo, which had been very hectic. Mm -hmm. And then to go there and just have rest was really nice. Yeah. Um, what was the process like? Like, were you, did you guys have a guide on like a, like a fixer a fixer on the ground or like how much was prepared or planned for before you got to the countries especially because they were conflict zones quote unquote. um so every the place that i was most prepared for was um lebanon because mm. i didn't know much about lebanon before going congo i used my friends mm-hmm Liberia, I used my friends. El Salvador, I had gone there to do research in 2020 for this book. Mm. And so I used the same people I used then. Um, so there was some prep ahead of time. Mm -hmm. uh, but Lebanon was the place I was most prepared for because I knew nothing about it. Yeah. And how long were you staying in each place? I stayed 10 days in Lebanon. Mm. Again, I knew nothing about Lebanon. So I was like, I got to immerse myself in their culture. Um Congo three days, Liberia three days, El Salvador four days. So no more, no more than four days usually. And what does the trip look like? Like what are the steps? What, how are how are the meals talked about? How are they enjoyed? Um. So what usually? So what happened before I started the travels? I did uh, research on the cuisine first. Mm -hmm. So I picked eight to ten recipes from each country, and then while I was there, I just really chased down. What does an Egyptian kitchen look like? Mm. What are you eating every day in Egyptian home? Mm. And then the recipes in the book became reflective of that. Mm. So same, you know, in Mbibi's kitchen, it was so much more about cooking. Mm -hmm. This book is much more about people. Mm. So it was like going for tea with Mikey, going, you know, to the center that he runs. It was, it was, I cooked with a woman named Tanya in Liberia. Some of that was like just being in Tanya's kitchen and watching her cook. And then in the Congo, we made beignets, you know. So wow. sometimes there was a little bit of food, but very often it was like sitting in someone's courtyard and recording them. And what are you recording on? Uh, I use... Like an um, audio recorder? Uh, we use our camera. Mm. So Riley, my photographer, God bless his heart, shoots everybody. Mm. Um, and then I use my phone to record. Mm -hmm. And then I transcribe everything. Natural writer. Oop. We love it. That I'm not. Well, your writing is beautiful. Thank you. This is so, oh my gosh, I'm so excited for this. What is something that you learned about how food impacts a place, or actually how conflict impacts the food of a place? Ooh. I think one of the things that was so clear to me was the importing, the exporting. Mm. So like Liberia, where they eat ton of rice, they mm. no longer grow their own rice. Mm. 
So they imported from China. Um, and, and we're talking about a place that can easily grow rice, you right. know, and that historically grows rice. Um, so just the basics, like a lot of these wars were started over land, mm. you know? Um, so El Salvador, I learned a ton about coffee mm-hmm. and, and some of the things that have happened with the government because of coffee and coffee farms, which is shocking to me. I'm like, wow. Um, but in other places, it was it wasn't so much about the impact on, like in Lebanon, they no longer import a lot of things because it's super expensive, so they pickle stuff. Mm-hmm. And in the winter, they you know they can everything and they put it in the ground. Well, and so I learned a lot about their pantries, which Lebanese people are really big on pantries. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Um, so small stuff like that. Those are those everything that you just shared is so important. It's insane. It's like tiny little things that make a huge difference. It's like a reminder that the more you learn, the more you realize you know nothing. Oh my God. And how individual every person is and every culture. Mm. What is a question that you are currently asking yourself? Ooh. Um I think every day I try to ask myself, what do I know for sure? <laughs> I love that question. You it's know, actually in my journal and it's from Oprah from it's when I was like, that Oprah girl. book. Yeah. I'm obsessed with that book. That's how I started asking myself the same question. That is so funny. Yeah. It's like from high school. I literally days. read that. Mm-hmm. I like, I read that book probably when I was 17 or 18 and it's interesting. I, I think I should totally <clears throat> revisit it because when I ask myself, like, what do I know for sure? I think I also asked that last season at the end of every episode. But I feel like now the only thing I know for sure is, like, love. Mm-hmm. It's just, like, it's just, like, love and be here now. Like, being here right now and everything else is up for question. Mm. What do you know for sure? Ooh, um, I know that I'm loved deeply by my partner. Um I know that I'm so safe and I have so much security. I have more security than I've ever had in my life. I love that for you. Thank you. Hi there. I want to share with you a good deed opportunity. At ICU Foundation, we work to alleviate local homelessness and directly serve community members in need. We do this through our community pantry, family food bags, hygiene kits, snack bags, winter care packages, and grocery gift cards. Lately, we've been seeing incredible impact by partnering with businesses and organizations to host volunteer events where their teams make and distribute the ICU care bags. ICU is our response to a community member who, when we asked what she needed most, responded with, We just need to be seen. So if you would like to join us in seeing and serving the community, email us at contact at isyfoundation.org. Okay, back to the show. What's a meal you've been cooking a lot these days? Oh God, this is going to sound so boring to you, but I've been making a lot of ground turkey because I'm trying to get a lot of protein in these days. that, That is an easy way to do it. The ground turkey. What are you making? How are you making it? Because I get it sometimes and then I'm just like, do I just toss it in with? Yeah. So 
the behavior. You're looking away as if you're going to be embarrassed by your answer. Because it's so embarrassing. You could have made something up, but you were honest. I love it. Oh, I I can't lie. Um, I... The beginning of every week, we have this system in my house where I use our food processor to chop all of our vegetables. So I prepare everything well in advance so no onion cutting happens, no pepper cutting happens. So I just, I have my red onions that I use. Yeah. And then I get two two things of uh, ground turkey. Mm-hmm. And I get the Trader Joe's taco mix. Mm-hmm. And I just dump it in. Don't be embarrassed. <laughs> That's what I do. It's That sounds great. <laughs> You're like, and I always put it on top of a bed of spinach. Mm, fresh or fresh? Yeah. I could go for that right now. Yeah, it, it works. I get like almost 50 grams of protein just in like those two cups. Do you add best best? No, not often. What's your favorite way to use best best? Yeah. Oh, on everything, on my eggs, on on my, like, chicken sausages, on if I'm making a sandwich, if I have people over, I have it, like, in the middle as a dip. That's amazing. Yeah. Okay, so your mom, how does she show up in the Best Best process in the In BB's Kitchen and in the cookbook that you're currently writing, like, what is it, what is her experience knowing who you are today through those things? Oh, I don't know. You know, I think when I modeled, my mom was really embarrassed that like her Muslim daughter went to America, didn't become a lawyer, but she became a model. Mm. And like, now I don't know that my mom completely understands what I do for work, you know? Yeah. But she's aware that i'm like a professional yeah and that like when we travel i can get her a hotel room you know (laughs) like and that makes her so happy but in the way that she shows up in the experiences that i write about anyways is that my mom is the epitome of resiliency yeah and i hate that word to be honest with you yeah i tell people all the time baby i'm gonna lay down yeah ain't nothing about me strong like you know shouldn't have to be get somebody else to do it because i'm i'm gonna lay down yeah you know um but my mom is not like that like after all of these years she is she's just joy Mm. and so i try to experience anything i do from the perspective of joy first whether it be in new friendships or a new gym or I always am like, ooh, this is going to be fun. Mm. And that's what my writing is about. Mm. It's about how do I celebrate us? How do I celebrate myself? How do I celebrate these stories? And I learned that from my mother. Mm. That's so beautiful. I mean, you're really repping something that's so much bigger than yourself now through your writing and through your business. And it's just... I, not that we should ever think this way, but it's like, I wonder if your story was any different from when you were younger, if we would have been able to, if it it would have had the same trajectory and how you executed or how you ended up creating the art that you create. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm just so thankful that things shook out the way that they did. Totally. Because had I stayed in Somalia, probably would be married you know Mm. had I ended up living with my mom all those years I would have raised all her kids Mm. you know um 
where now I have very, I'm very independent. I have a life that is based on like, what does Howa want to create? What kind of community does Howa want to build? Who does Howa want to love? You know, yeah. it's, it's very much so different than that of my siblings. Yeah. Um, and so I'm very thankful because I, I know that had I stayed in Kenya, what is now wouldn't have been. Yeah. Have you ever been back to Kenya or Somalia? Oh, yeah. I, I, I was just actually in Kenya not long ago for Christmas, um, but I haven't been back to Somalia. I'm hoping to go this year. Yeah. How do you feel yeah. about that trip? I just want to see my dad. Mm. He fi- he just had a kid for the first time outside of my mom. So all these years, my dad has only had five children and mm-hmm. my mom has 10. <laughs> five with her second husband and five with my father. And so I want to go meet my little sister. And I want to see his life. He's a camel herder. Wow. Um, so I'm like, I want to experience the camels. Do you ever talk to him about that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We. I'll, I'll show you photos after. Sometimes he sends me updates. Like what's... What is the most interesting thing that you've learned about camel herding? Oh, it's a big business. I know. I, I wish I could tell you it's like, oh, the he tells me that the milk is good for eczema and that it's great for it's great <laughs> sleep aid. He tells me those kind of things, but it's a big business. That's so that's so interesting. Well, I'm thinking about like how you maybe this is a little more personal, but how you essentially had to figure out who you were on your own terms Mm -hmm. because you weren't around family for so long. And now there's like this air of certainty of like today I know who Hawa Hawa is. And you've been able to have the space to do that. So when you engage with your family and your siblings and stuff today is there would you say like a cultural difference and if so where do you where do you find yourself meeting them and where do you find yourself pondering a little bit more Ooh, um there's definitely a cultural difference between my siblings and I um even my mother and I but the fabric of us is the same, wow. which is so interesting. Um, my family's hectic. You know, 10 kids is a lot of people. Yeah. And so we are a group of chaotic people. But I'm on the less, less, less chaotic side <laughs> of things, you know. And my mom always says, that's my white daughter. <laughs> That's what um, she says. I'm like, mom, you could say American. Like, you don't have to, you know. That's so and, funny. And it's because, like, I will leave and go to yoga. Yeah. I will. I never visit them and not go work out. Mm. You know, I never visit them and not, like, go for coffee in the morning alone. Mm. And they're not used to that. Yeah. Um, They're used to getting up and getting right in the thick of mess. Yeah. And so culturally, we're very different in that way. Uh, my my family loves being around people. Mm-hmm. I'm very much a loner by nature, and a lot of people don't know that about me. Actually, I think people think I'm very social, mm. um, which is a good facade. But I'm not that social. Um, so cu- culturally, we're really, really, really different. But mm. the fabric of us is so similar, and so I never not feel at home with them. Mm. Like they are my home. Yeah, you know. What is your hope? What is your wish for? future generations who 
feel disconnected from their ancestors and their elders? Ooh. Um, I think my hope would be that anyone who feels disconnected is able to do the work to reconnect. And what does that look like? Maybe it's a, a going back. Mm. Maybe it's a creating. You know, I think it looks different for everyone. For me, it was the going back. It was the sitting in the kitchens. It was the giving up my life in New York. It was the, you know, quitting my 10-year relationship. It was all these things, you know. It, yeah. was, it was leaving Seattle. Had I never left Seattle, I don't know that I would have the life I have. Yeah. You know, I don't know that I would be so close to my mom. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I always encourage people. I'm like, if you have doubts, go. Yeah. Like $2 in your pocket, go, mm -hmm. you know, get on the airplane, go sit somewhere, go talk to people mm -hmm. um, and go connect and get off the Internet. Yeah, that's the goal. <laughs> Truly. I know. I really want to get off the Internet. I feel like I always talk about this with my friends, but I, I say like my favorite use of the Internet is like the dinner that we had on Thursday. It's being yeah. able to like figure out and connect people and, and be like, since it's almost like a contact profile and being like, hey, you, 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 let's like go hang out and meet. And then just the acknowledgement of like a profile is not a person. Yeah. A person is a person. Yep. So speaking of persons, who is Hawa Hassan today? Ooh. Like this Saturday? Like this Saturday. Yeah, just today. Because um, every day... Every day is a new day, so you can be a new person every day. Yeah. Today, I would say I am someone who's incredibly content. Mm. Um, I'm somebody who spends a lot of time trying to figure out how I can be better and do better. Mm. Um, and I would say I'm somebody who just really enjoys my own company. I can feel that. From you. Oh, I can really you. feel that. Don't make me cry. You know, I'm I'm ready to drop a tear. All right. The way we wrap up these conversations, and this has been such a special one. Thank you so much for being so open, is a fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. So if you really knew me, mm -hmm. you would know. And then you can share one, two, or three things. If you really knew me, you would know that I eat bananas with everything. Mm. Just like plain bananas. Yeah. Perfect. Uh, if you really knew me, you would know that I'm super athletic, and I pride myself on that. Um, if you really knew me, then you would know I love traveling. Mm. Thank you so much, Hawa. Thank you. And if somebody had $2 in their pocket but the opportunity to travel anywhere in the world, where would you tell them to go to find themselves? Oh, um, I would say anywhere where you want to connect. Like for me, the beginning of 2020 was El Salvador. I wanted to know more about El Salvador, so I went. I'm very looking forward to the El Salvador chapter of this book. I'm gonna send you some photos. I'm gonna. I can't wait. I'll, yes, I'll please, send them please. To you today. Thank you, Hawa. Thank you, Noor. Podcast Nude is an at-your-service production. Producers include myself, Adam Khafif, and Sara Isa. Editing by Nuran Morsi. Theme music is the song Thunderdome, Welcome to America by Portugal the Man. Extra gratitude to our storyteller, Hawa Hassan. Enjoy her cookbook, In Bibi's Kitchen. 
check out her show on the Food Network, Hewa at Home, and make sure you get a bottle of her amazing Best Bass sauce. As always, at your service.